Right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Again, my name's Nick. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's been a while since I've been here on a Sunday morning preaching. Uh, if you remember, the last time I was scheduled, scheduled to preach was the day after New Year's, and uh, my family all caught COVID. And so I called Brandon the night before. I said, hey, I'm really sorry, man. I'm not going to make it tomorrow. And so on 12 hours notice, uh, Pastor Brandon threw together a sermon, uh, covered for me, um, and that was that. And so uh, we are grateful, ultimately, that we didn't pass COVID to anybody else, grateful that we have bodies that heal, uh, thankful for everyone who sent us uh, meals and groceries and boba. Um, so praise God for that. Uh, we are uh, journeying through the book of Mark. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we are in week three, so in chapter two, if you have your Bibles. And we are looking through the Gospel of Mark, specifically through the lens of a book written by Tim Keller, pastor and author out of New York. And so I want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of these ideas come from uh, Tim Keller. So we're in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. We're going to look at two instances of Jesus engaging with people, specifically the religious leaders of the day, on the Sabbath. So we're going to look at two different instances. Uh, we'll do it one at a time. So chapter 2, verse 23. It reads, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So just backing up a little bit, this idea of Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means rest. It's linguistically tied to uh, the word for seven in reference to the seven days of creation that God worked for six days, rested on the seventh. It's also nearly synonymous with the word shalom, which means peace or wholeness or completeness. The visual image of shalom is that of Eden, where God literally walked with humanity. And so when we look at this practice of Shabbat, of Sabbath, to the Jews, this was, this was sacred. This is one of the most holy practices that God gave them when it came to living out Torah, living out the law. And uh, the challenging thing, I think, that the Pharisees or these religious leaders had was that they had to put flesh and bones to uh, this very high, lofty idea of a weekly day of rest. And think about it, if, if we were to implement Sabbath today, which is a practice that we do advocate for as New Covenant believers, uh, we don't believe that Jesus was anti-Sabbath, we believe that he was reclaiming Sabbath. But if you think about it, at some point there needs to be a boundary, uh, a tangible practice that you decide, I'm going to do these things and I'm not going to do these things. And so in defense of the Pharisees, what they did is they came up with 39 prohibitions that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And they lived in an agrarian society, so most of, it, most of it had to do with either livestock 
or the growing and harvesting of crops. And so when it came to wheat and grain and the processing thereof, the prohibitions were things like reaping, winnowing, threshing, um, things that I have no idea about because I'm not a farmer. But I looked these things up, and um, it kind of makes sense. These are things that constitute work. And so what the disciples of Jesus were doing on that Sabbath day is that they were walking through these fields, and they were hand-picking pieces of grain, um, moving away the chaff, and they were eating the, the seeds as sort of a snack. And it's important to note here that this was actually common practice in first century Palestine. And it was actually uh, provided for in the law. Um, God designed Israel to be a place where there was no poor, uh, where the, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, um, wouldn't starve, that they could walk through fields that didn't belong to them, and the farmers were instructed to leave certain parts of their crops um, unharvested for that reason. Uh, it was just uh, meant to be done uh, with, within reason. They're supposed to use their hands and not tools um, so that I wasn't um, exploiting these farmers. It was just a means for them to, to live, to, to eat. And so this is what the disciples and Jesus were doing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees' complaint wasn't that they were stealing, even though that's the first thing that kind of comes to my mind. Why are they taking grain that doesn't belong to them? But instead, they were doing what the Pharisees considered work, according to their 39 prohibitions, that violated the Sabbath. And so they took their external rules that they used to interpret the law of Moses, and by those 39 prohibitions, which, again, we don't find that in Scripture, we find that in rabbinic tradition, Jesus and his disciples were in, in violation of that. And so that's kind of what's going on here. And so they accused Jesus. They said, why are you doing what is illegal on the Sabbath, on the most holy day? And Jesus responds by referring to David. And this is important because David represented the golden age of Israel. He was the king of kings. He was what everybody pointed to when they thought of the Messiah, when they thought of better times, when they thought about the restoration of the kingdom. And so he points to David when he was on the run from Saul. And he goes to the high priest and he says, do you have something to eat? And the high priest says, we, we have the sacred bread. It's reserved for the priest. But if you and your men have not defiled yourselves, if you are ceremon ceremonially clean, you may eat it. So even though this was in violation of the letter of the law, David was allowed to eat the bread. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying that there is a heart, there is an intent to Torah, in that it was meant to be life-giving, that these instructions from God were meant to serve humanity and connect humanity with the living God. In other words, it's a means to an end not an end in and of itself. And so when he says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man or mankind, not man for the Sabbath. What he's saying is that there is, there is a purpose, that the Sabbath was meant to restore. The Sabbath was meant to bring us into relationship with the Father. And we were not meant to serve this ideal. And then he says something that goes beyond sort of this insight in verse 28. 
He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, the Son of Man is a moniker that Jesus uses to describe himself. It means that he's representative of man or of humanity. It's a reference to the Old Testament prophets. Uh, think Daniel, think Ezekiel. And so he's essentially saying, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. And Keller makes a really interesting observation here. He points out that Jesus doesn't say, I am Lord over the Sabbath, as if he has authority to change things up or give himself an exception. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, as if to say, the Sabbath flows from me. I am the source of rest. I am the very definition of shalom. What Mark does is that when we enter chapter 3, and again, these chapter divisions are man-made. They weren't there in the original text. He takes us to another Sabbath, and we see the same tension building between the religious leaders and Jesus. And so we're going to keep reading in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So here we have another instance of Jesus on the Sabbath. And on this particular Sabbath, he's in the synagogue, where often he is. So he's this observant Jew goes to church uh, every week, and there's this man with a shriveled hand. And keep in mind that in those days, those with disabilities were considered outcasts of society because oftentimes that disability was understood as the consequence of some sort of sin, either in their life or their parents' life or their grandparents' life. And oftentimes because of that disability, they were also unable to work. So there was a, a, a level of poverty associated with that disability. And so on the Sabbath day, in the synagogue, people are, are watching Jesus, particularly the religious leaders, because they're wary of him. They're wanting him to, to walk into a trap. And it, it's really interesting, because I, I feel the same tension uh, sometimes in myself when there's this kind of this angry self-righteousness where you're just waiting for someone to fail. And I, I would never say it like that, but you're kind of watching them, and, and you just, you're just thinking like, oh, I'm just waiting for them to screw up. And we see the same dynamic with the Pharisees, that there's this hardness to their hearts where they're waiting for Jesus to stumble so that they can point it out, so that they can condemn him. And so front and center is this man with a shriveled hand, and they're, they're watching him to see what is Jesus going to do? Because on any other day, he would heal him. Jesus has this track record of healing those that are outcasts, um, those with, with disabilities, those with things that are ailing them, 
And the interesting thing is that Jesus understands that there's this tension, understands that all eyes are on him, and that people are, are angry with him. And I think this instance is really interesting, because when we look at other parts of Jesus' ministry, um, say when there are crowds, when he's getting the good kind of attention, he often withdraws, that he moves away from the crowd, because he, he, he doesn't want that type of attention. And he takes his disciples and says, hey, let's go away and let's, let's rest. We're becoming celebrities, let's go to the next town. But here, when he's getting the bad type of attention, he doesn't move away. He doesn't put his head down and walk. He, he actually confronts it head on. And I find this, this really fascinating. And so what he does is he, he, he takes the man with the shriveled hand. He says, I want you to stand up in front of everybody. Everyone's watching us anyways. Here, stand here in front of them. Then he says in verse 4, and he says this to the crowd, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And so it's sort of this rhetorical question. He's asking them, what is the heart and the intent of Sabbath? Why do we do this week in, week out? And in this question, he's asking, do we do it just to make ourselves feel good? To check a box? To say, well, I haven't done these 39 things, therefore I'm right with God? The implication here is that there is an element to Sabbath that they were missing. And the implication here is, it, what's the point? Is it to do good or to do evil? What's to do good? Is it to, to save life or to kill? Well, it's, it's to save life. It's, it's to restore life. And I find this really fascinating. In verse 5, Mark tells us, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And it's fascinating because not often do we get an insight into the emotional life of Jesus. Sometimes I think we as pastors uh, assume certain things or we say, hey, Jesus has a sense of humor. He must be joking here. But the text never actually says that. But here, Mark tells us Jesus was angry. He was visibly angry. And it must have left a mark so, uh, so that Peter would remember, and then he would tell Mark, and that Mark would actually put it into print here. And so what Jesus does is he calls this man up to the front, and directly confronting uh, his critics, knowing that um, he was doing something in violation of their standards, not God's standards, but their standards. He tells the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out, and, and it's completely restored, miraculously, right in front of everybody. And then in verse 6, we read, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And just a little commentary on that. The Herodians were the puppet government put in place by the Romans. They represented Greek culture. They represented compromise. Uh, they were sort of the progressives of the day. And the Pharisees were the conservatives. So essentially, uh, the Pharisees, in their anger, said, I'm going to go plot with our enemies because I just want Jesus out. We need to take him out completely. And I think it's important to, to remember, too, that uh, this level of animosity um, is, is unique, that, that there's something inside these religious leaders that are deeply bothered by Jesus' grace, by Jesus' mercy, enough that they would want to to go out of their way to murder him.
So what, one of the things that I think is interesting about uh, the practice of the Sabbath is that it both predates and postdates the Mosaic Law. Postdates, I, I don't know if that's a word, came after the Mosaic Law. That there's a new covenant practice of Sabbath, and Sabbath is something that existed before Moses. In fact, if we go back to the very beginning of Scripture, in the creation account, we read this, and uh, I'm going to start in uh, the end of chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Uh, chapter, two, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so God creates the world in, in six days, rests on the seventh, declares it very good. And the question that we ask is, why did God rest? Does God get tired? Does God need to recover? Does God need a recovery day from his six days of, of creation? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, on one hand, uh, I, I was taught growing up that Jesus, not Jesus, God rested on the seventh day to set an example for us, an example for us to follow. And although that's still true, Keller points out that there's another element to God resting. And uh, Keller, Keller writes it like this. I'm going to read from his book, because um, I like the way he puts it. Keller writes, A different reason to rest is to be so satisfied with your work, so utterly satisfied that you can leave it alone. Only when you can say about your work, I'm so happy with it, so satisfied, it is finished, can you walk away. When God finished creating the world, he said, it is good, and he rested. Now, I had to think about this for a little bit. Is, is this true? And I, I kind of thought about my, my own personality. I, I tend to be um, kind of OCD about certain things. Um, and uh, I, think there, I, think, I, think, I think it is true that there's a certain level of rest when something has been completed. Uh, my wife and I... Uh, just bought our first home this summer, so we're part of kind of that crazy housing frenzy with inflated prices and bidding wars and, and all that stuff. So uh, in the blessing that a new home is, it also came with uh, quite a bit of work, quite a bit of uh, investment into the renovations. And it was, a, it was a crash course for me in dealing with contractors and budgeting and deciding what to do, what not to do. And so all to say, I resonate deeply with the idea of completion equals rest. And so uh, on one hand, we were able to fix enough uh, that the water worked and you know, things weren't going to fall down, and, and we moved in in November. So we're really grateful for that. But I'll be honest, I wake up almost every morning thinking about something that's not right, or think something that I need to fix, or something that the contractor did that wasn't quite perfect. And so it amazes me that God would create the world in all of this beauty and perfection and that it would be so complete, so beautiful, that he can rest. That the God of the universe can sit back and say, it's good. It's good. 
And so it's interesting, and Keller points this out, that when we look at Jesus' legacy, uh, his life's, lifetime, his, his ministry, and that his, his last words as he hung on the cross, dying for the sins of humanity, he said, it is finished. In Greek, it's tetelestai, paid in full, as if a debt has been um, paid for, accounted for. It is finished. And so when we think about the depth of the Sabbath, on one hand, there is this healthy rhythm that God invites us into, that we are invited into this weekly remembrance that we are finite, that we need rest, that we are more than producers and consumers in this lifetime, that it is important to have a day where, where we sit and we reflect and we worship and we get with our community and we recognize that God is king and that we are his subjects. But there's a deeper thread that is woven throughout the narrative, narrative of scripture. And it's what Jesus gets at when he says that th there's more to Sabbath than you understand. It's, it's, um, Sabbath is, is um, something that uh, speaks of who he is. So when, when he says, I am... Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I, I, I am the Sabbath. I, I am rest. I am peace. And so for them, him then to, to go to the cross, to give his life, and then to say it is complete, and then he rested, that is sort of the, the pinnacle of the redemptive story. And I find this really interesting, actually, because Jesus was crucified um, on the same afternoon that started a very special Sabbath in the Jewish tradition. So he died uh, the night before Passover, or the Passover Sabbath. And so the entire day of Saturday, as we would call it, Jesus rested in the grave on the day that the Jews were observing Sabbath. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, and I won't get into too much detail, because the book of Hebrews... Um, by the way, the, the author is, is unknown, but there's a lot of depth, and it essentially connects the Old Testament with the New Testament, and it's written to first century Jewish believers. So there's kind of a lot of back and forth as far as the, the prophets and the Old Testament and uh, what that means in light of Jesus, in light of the gospel. So I'm going to take us to Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, I don't think I have a slide for this, but um, there's a lot of depth here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 9, the writer writes, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now again, like I said, there's a lot of nuance here. So their example would be uh, Israel's example, where they failed to live up to the old covenant and there were consequences, and there was basically a crumbling of the shalom uh, that God came to establish. But there's this image of rest being deeper than we often recognize. And he, there's this, this invitation that God has for his people to continually pursue this rest. And what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is not just, like I said, this, this weekly rest, this physical or emotional rest. It's this 
deep-seated spiritual soul rest. It's the rest beneath the rest. It's the tiredness beneath the tiredness. It's this desire that we have, this need to justify ourselves before God. This desire that we have, this need that we have, that people and God see us as good, that we be acceptable. And this is essentially what Jesus came to address. Jesus came to give. Jesus came to provide through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And so I want to leave you with this idea this morning, that when we look at Jesus and his claim to be the source, the the Lord of the Sabbath, I want to ask you, what does it look like for you to walk in that continually? Because as we look through the pages of Scripture, there still is this thread of obedience. But, but there's, an easy, there's an ease to it when we think about the way of Jesus. That it's not this heavy burden. It's this response. It's this invitation to, to live and to work and to minister alongside Jesus. And uh, I, I want to close with Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Um, I think a lot of us are familiar with, um, you know, come to me all you who are wary and heavy laden. I really like the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. And uh, I'm going to close with this. And this is Jesus speaking. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray together.